Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or Stock Twits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Oh, man, so hot. How do you people do it? Now we just uh, remote control start our vehicles with AC on, and then uh, we go from there. Tell you what, if it's a choice between the heat and COVID, I'll take COVID. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? You put heat and COVID together, that's what we got here it's in Phoenix. It's a bad combo. It's a shitty combo. I can't cool down. Is there any tricks? It's been so long. Do you remember what you used to do on the golf course? Take a wet Whoa, towel, cold water, put it around your neck? Yeah. That's the trick. Yeah. Who do, do I got to pay to get somebody to follow me around that does that? Because they all have COVID. You have a couple of kids, don't you? My kids won't talk to me, let alone get oh, me cold water. Sorry to hear that. So, uh, Panic with Friends episode something or other, nearing 100. So, the only thing you get cold from your kids there is a cold shoulder? Cold shoulder and a latitude. <laughs> we're, we're, we're at the tood. We're off the charts on tood. Oh. Yeah. My oldest one is turning 20 in a month. I'm hoping he's going to now be out of his teens and going to be more agreeable, but we'll find out. Yeah, we shall. Today, panic with friends with a very soothed, calm Bill, William, Billy, Willie, Libby, ex-Goldman. I don't know why it is. I, I like all of the ex-Goldman people. I don't like them when they're at Goldman, but when they leave Goldman, he partnered with a brilliant entrepreneur, Jason Finger, who started Seamless Web. Famous New York. It's like you know, Grubhub, but the the New York version of Grubhub. When you ordered food in New York, seamless web. Anyways, they have a structured credit fund. And it's so smart, these people. They're ahead of the curve. And you know, at Panic with Friends, we're trying to keep our audience one, not too far ahead of the curve, just a wee bit. A wee bit ahead of the curve, oh, uh, looking about just five miles an hour faster than everybody else. Not breaking any speed records, just banging out doubles and triples. That's what we're hoping to help people do. And so Bill Libby is joining us. I've been trying to get him on the show uh, to talk about startups and creative financing and uh, technology. So uh, let's dial him up. Sounds like a plan. Hello. Bill Libby. Howard. Big day for you. It is. I've, you know, a lot of practice, a lot of hard work, <laughs> and a good night's sleep. <laughs> and the kids are tied up in the back. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what my guests do. They tie up the kids. COVID, uh, COVID, not. Where, where are you? New Hampshire. Providence. Oh, you're Providence. You keep telling me that, and I keep yeah. forgetting. I've never been to Providence. You're welcome anytime. It's actually it's an amazing place to be. Are there any, is there any statue problems over there in Providence? No, none. I mean, oh. if I had you on Zoom, you know, like 30 minutes, you're in the water, and you know, you ride a brown, you're close to Boston, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, Providence sounds pretty. Sounds proper. The, uh, so you escaped New York. I did. And what, what's, what's, it, what's, what's our feel there? Two years, five years, one year? You know, I think we were ready for an adventure. We've been in New York for 15 years, and we have two young kids, and it just felt like raising children in New York wasn't our ideal outcome, and 
needed to find a place where we could still be close enough. And then my wife got a job with Brown in her medical department and just kind of all happened. And, you know, just in the better to be lucky than good, we, it happened in January and uh-huh. we just jumped on that and, you know, we're ahead of the trend a little bit. Oh, so you were going to move no matter what. Correct. We moved in January and everyone in New York was telling us, you know, you can't leave. You're going to miss the city. You, you know, you, how can you work if you're not in New York city? And, it was like a struggle to get out of there, and then we did. And now once you're out, the drug wears off. It's fun. To exactly. They don't. It's let just you leave, like though. Ambien. It's just like yeah, Ambien. Exactly. Three hard exactly. days. There's three hard you days. You did it. When did you? When did you kind of move to where San Diego? Yeah. So we. I'm Toronto. Moved to Phoenix to go to you know Harvard of the West ASU, and nice. uh, it's like Devry, but a little higher up. <laughs> it's like Devry with sand. And then uh, I went to a school called Thunderbird, which I bankrupted. Sure. Uh, had a good reputation. And then I showed up and they were, <laughs> they were BK very quickly. Even you couldn't have saved them once I went to that school. <laughs> and then uh, San Diego. As a Jew, we go to the desert and then we wander. I agree. Yeah, I'm yeah. a fellow Jew. <laughs> Libby's not a... Is Libby a Jewish name? The spy. Like, we're both blonde hair. Um, no, I'm sure it was something much longer when, we, when our great-grandparents came over. Yeah, you could go both ways. You could go Aryan or Jew. Yeah, yeah, that's a treat. That's a that's a, that's a good that's a good thing. The um, all right, upper ninety. Uh, you know, I didn't give everybody before I came on a full background. Tell everybody a little bit about upper ninety, and then we'll get into uh, how cool uh, life is these days and how hard it is. But uh, upper ninety, tell everybody what you do. Sure. So we try to help founders own more of their company. And I think my background in quant, which is looking at data and Jason's background, having started seamless in technology, the last 15 years really has been an equity narrative. Like if you want to grow your business, you need to raise a more and more equity. And I think that a lot of businesses have capital intensive needs and they have predictable revenue models or they have some receivable where equity is really a blunt tool. And I think you can start using credit to kind of isolate certain parts of your business and, and, and scale with a lot less dilution. So I think it came by mashing our worlds and our other partner, Alex really understands credit deeply and, and it almost feels like you're going to see this trend where debt is going to lead equity versus today. It feels like equities led debt. Like, you know, you raise equity and then you get cheap debt, but the combined cost of that capital is really expensive. Yeah, what do you call it? I forget, I love the term you have. If you, with the A, replace the yeah. A? Yeah, I think we've just found a lot of companies, you know, they raise their seed round, they prove their business model, they get their initial customers, they establish product market fit, and they're ready to scale. And that could be lending money, that could be rolling up assets, it could be factoring, you know, anything that has some type of um, capital intensive element. And as soon as they kind of finish that first phase, we see the exact same playbook. It's now you go and raise, you know, 10 on 40 or 10 on 50. And this kind of very... Or 10 on 20, you know, if if you don't have momentum. Exactly. And, you know, it's sort of been like delay your A or skip your A. Delay your A. I love that. Yeah. And I just think it, it really... And a lot of people say, oh, you know, well, your debt's expensive. But, I mean, it's temporary. And I think the when you just for founders, the best time to be raising is when you don't need to raise money. And so I think it's really helping give founders a tool to grow part 
of their business where um, there's enough predictability where debt makes sense. Yeah, I think you're you're a trendsetter here. I mean, obviously, Jason, I met Alex. He came to one of our events, so he's yeah. he's way ahead of the curve. He came to a Stocktoberfest. Absolutely. And yeah, and he understands technology and automation. It's it's really it's fun. Like I think the three of us all bring a different approach. And so, where were you before? I spent most of my career at Goldman, and really in the electronic trading world. So that's building technology and selling technology to hedge funds so they can do things on their own. And so you know, early days of fintech, and then the second half of my career at Goldman was was more using those algorithms to make. Uh, electronic markets for our clients. And so always been in that quantitative trading realm. And so how did you get the hook? How'd you get the bug? So I've always been really interested in technology. I, you know, kind of just, you, you know, you end up by chance in certain roles in life mm-hmm. and, you know, very fortunate to have, have that experience um, at GS. And I was always attracted to what was happening in FinTech. I was an early um, early involvement in, in Robinhood, similar to you and Kensho and, you know, just really started investing personally in some of these kind of fintech disruptors. And that really just helped me get out of the finance world and closer to the tech world. And then as I spent more time with Jason and really started learning more about like e-commerce marketplaces that, you know, you just try to find some way that you can take what you've learned in finance and, and export that to another area, and it's hard. Um, but I think through investing personally and also just networking, I was able to kind of get closer to the tech world. And, and I think finding, like, you know, providing efficient capital is what we re- did really well as a quantitative trading firm, making markets. And I think that's kind of the goal there, using data to, to provide more efficient capital to founders in the tech world as an alternative to equity. And are you out there? Well, Jason has a network. You now have a network. So when you started with this idea, who were who was the inspiration for this for the model? It really sometimes is luck. You know, you create your own luck. But I've always looked at the most successful businesses, and it's usually a combination of two independent businesses. And we started an informal investment group or club, which had a number of quant founders and a number of tech founders. And the goal was just to share deals because the quant deals, you know, are very liquid and downside protected and the tech deals are very binary. And we put a group together that would share deals. And one of the first deals that came into the group was a company called FilmRise. And FilmRise takes data from Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, YouTube, Roku, and they can track what people are watching online. Because, you know, and God forbid they should do that themselves. This is genius. Right. Yeah. And they can just, they, they, with that information, they can estimate what the value is of content I online. Love that. Yeah. So if you see The Last Dance from Michael Jordan, you can see sports documentaries are very popular. If you see The Crown, you can see British miniseries are very popular. So with this information, you know, I think throughout history, people that have a data advantage and use it principally win. You don't sell the data when you have an advantage. Correct. So big. You hear this all the time. We're a data. Yeah. We're a data. This. I'm like, no. Yeah. If you got to lead with data, you're not a business. I agree. And so what they would do is they take this information and they'll go to PBS, BBC, Discovery Channel, A and E. They look at their TV libraries from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, 
and they can license the digital rights to all this long tail programming at a massive discount because no one knows really what it's worth on YouTube or Netflix. And so, you know, as they were scaling, you know, the, the natural tool is, you know, raise equity. And I think looking at all of their data and like the price they're buying it versus the price they're selling it and the diversity of the pool of assets and, you know, that they're getting paid contractually by Netflix that we said you can finance this growth with debt. And so I think kind of that debt deal came in through the tech side of our business through one of the founders that was connected with them. And then the quant side kind of was looking at the data and saw that there was a better way to finance the growth um, than equity. And so I think just keeping these two, you know, the real changes in the tech world, but the capital efficiencies in the, in the quant world. So it's, that's kind of how this started. And that's most of our LPs in our fund, which we launched in 2018, I'd say 60% are tech entrepreneurs and the other, you know, 30 or 40% are quant founders. Yeah, and and you know, full disclosure, we're investing in fund two personally. Yeah, um, exactly. So the and do you think credit managers get better? Like in my world, I my world in the world that I think I the alpha exists in my brain, in my eyes, in my ears. I think first time managers have an edge because their network's strong, the domain experience isn't diluted. Uh, it's just my empirical there is data that says that the alpha is better in the first time fund manager it feels to me like in debt and structure structured finance and and what you guys do maybe you get better at it as you go so like anything i think the world will get more competitive i think we've purposely not tried to raise billions of dollars when we do a first facility if it's film rise or thrasio or bravo um, or rally road that's how we met maybe. rally road rally. exactly yeah, yeah you know, like we're a really good early partner. Like we can help you build that internal finance muscle. We can help you get to bank financing faster, but we don't need to put 50, a hundred, $200 million into a deal. Like we can do a $10 million facility and that would be a great position for our fund. And what we find is that once you start working with a company, like, you know, what rally road is doing today, fractionalizing antiques and, um, collectible, let's just say that in collectibles, let's just say that matures and now gets bank financing in two years. Right. Well, I'm sure that they're going to have another product category that they're going to want to get started where we're another great source of initial capital to help season it instead of having user equity. So I, I think you just kind of find these interesting niches and you don't try to lock up the founder for forever. And I think the other element we found is most of the debt firms that we compete with are, you know, they come they, out of a debt firm. And we've heard them bragging. They're like, you know, in your term sheet, we saw you put LIBOR plus 100. Like, you know, change it to three-month LIBOR, not one-month LIBOR, and the guys won't pick it up, and you can pick up an extra 100 basis points. Or, you know, so I, I think there's, like, having Jason as a founder, like, even though we're debt, it's not loan-to-own. It's not trying to pick up nickels. It's, you know, we still invest 10% of what we do in debt in equity. And so I think it's just, kind of aligning with founders and not trying to be a typical debt firm, which um, the founders don't really often want to work with. Yeah, I, I feel I'm super bullish. Like there's a guy who's never bought a bond and I may be worth 100 million, 200 million one day. Let's knock on wood. Yeah. I'm working hard, but I don't know if I'll ever get there. But you know, the goal is to, you know, you, you compound and you, and you get wealthy. I don't think I'll ever buy a bond. So, so, yeah. so I was the last guy that was like, oh God. I don't even want to talk to these guys. And then I met you guys and I talked to you and I'm just, 
I, it was like a breath of fresh air. I understood it. It's like, why, like, why are these people chasing yield when there's actual st structured ideas to get high returns, a win-win situation? The narrative is, is really what it's all about. The VC narrative is strong. Uh, the risk. Well, we have to partner with early stage. It's, it's, it's amazing. You have to find the companies at the right stage of inflection. And it's really important to work with the early stage ecosystem of VC. You know, when Jason started Seamless Grubhub about 19 years ago, most VCs were seed and series A focused. So they were very aligned with True. founders and very True. dilution sensitive. True. And over the last 10 years, almost every VC has started to build growth equity arms. And so as soon as a business is working, you know, they're incentivized to put in as much as possible, as early as possible which is misaligned potentially with founders. Good point. So I think the landscape's kind of changed and, you know, like it's supply demand, there's too much capital out there. And I think you're going to see founders having more tools. But I think one of the big challenges for us is working more closely with VCs like yourselves. We've worked with Ribbit and IA Ventures and Contour. Um, and then also just how do we educate founders about like what capital options are out there? Right. It's not like you're running around doing podcasts. I'm probably the first guy to even ask yeah, you on a, no, on a podcast. Exactly. Exactly. And it's against the grain for a founder to like, you know, turn down a, you know, a tier one VC. No, smart people are everywhere. One thing we have distributed, but not, uh, but the VCs control the narrative is, yep. is smart people. And uh, I've never, you know, if you told me three months ago, in March when I started the podcast, cause the whole, the whole idea of this thing was like, let me panic with some smart people because you know, it's too late at this point. It was March 10th. Right. I'm like, too late. You should have sold. <laughs> so let's hunker down and bunker up and see, let's talk five years from now because this will pass. Uh, if you had said, Oh, by June, QQs will be at the all time highs and, and uh, we will have forgotten about we work and we've forgotten about SoftBank. They're just like, uh, right. they're just a little half joke at this point. Uh, there's no way I would have made that bet. And here we are. Yeah. True. Did you like, what did you see in March? Did you guys flinch at all? Or what were you, what were you, cause you guys are smart guys. You know, it's, it's a great question. One, one of our LPs, what we saw in March was, you know, our view that there's just still way too much capital. You saw massive funds being raised because there was a dislocation. You know, you could buy corporate bonds at huge discounts, but that arbitrage, lasted for weeks fucking days you know, and so exactly and so i i think it's like there's still too much money than there are opportunities and that will compound um with this you know financial easing but one of our lps asked us like that exact question and our view is that there's a huge structural move to e-commerce that was part of our original thesis like you can start a business online today with very low cost like we could start a store tomorrow on Amazon selling hiking poles or whiteboards almost in a week with in. really no cost. By the way, I'm in. Just mark me down. Right, exa exactly. Or Shopify. Yeah. However. Do you like my moobs idea? I'm going to do a moobs line of clothing. You don't I'm have in. moobs. Yeah, I'm you're in. All right, so we trade it off. I'm, we're, in. We're, I'm in your deals. You're on my deals, but keep going. Exactly. So. so we can start a business online with very low friction, you know, which is kind of exciting for the world and, and, and people to be entrepreneurs. But the cost to scale a business online is the same as it was in the real world. Like you need inventory capital and you need supply chain redundancy and you need marketing capital. So we've just found all these great operators like Thrasio that are, you know, in reality, they're doing franchising 2.0. They're going and rolling up all these subscale sellers on Amazon 
and bringing efficiency. Like 20 years ago, we'd be doing this podcast, you know, talking about rolling up coffee shops and dry cleaners, you know, and now I think this guy, what's new is old. It's like all these businesses are starting online. Just a digital version. Capital needs. It's a digital exactly. What do you and call Thrasio though? I'm, I, I loved it. Like, I wasn't. It's almost like franchising 2.0. It's like, you know, it's kind of, cre- you know, just rolling up assets and creating, you know, scale efficiencies, but they need capital to do a roll up and they need capital for inventory. So I think upper 90 can kind of partner with a lot of these great, you know, online operators that are doing lending or receivables financing or roll ups where it would just almost be not even cost inefficient. It just wouldn't be possible with equity. You know, we've given Thrasio almost like a few hundred million dollars. It's our largest investment. um, And the founders still own the majority of the company. Genius. Win, 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 which is, yeah, and they just raise you. It's a negative word. You grew up in a, a billion dollar valuation. Yeah, I just I was going to talk about it later, but um, yeah, the it's kind of anti what you learned at Goldman. You're unwinding a lot of what you were. That was a hoarding environment. You're in a Karitsu environment now. Well, it's fun. You know, I think it's fun. I'm lucky. I've always enjoyed networking and learning. And you know, what I find is even when I spend time with Jason, you know, he's really interested in learning about the quant world and. I think if you just bring together people from different backgrounds, like you kind of create, you find this opportunity in the middle. One of our other LPs who I really respect um, that works at a venture fund, you know, he said that the way the bank world think and the way the venture world thinks are just so different. So different. And I think, you know, just trying to find that in between um, is where, for now, there's an opportunity. And if most people see you in the way that you see yourself, I ventures top of the food chain, Roger. Um, I also, you mentioned, uh, I'm trying to think what other firm you just mentioned you do, but anyways, you're working top of the like food. Ribbit. Ribbit, right. Yeah. Mickey. And um, now Mickey's, do you think he's one step ahead? I was going to, I got a million questions, but you know, we'll roll quickly into SPACs. So they've gone from a world and maybe, maybe this March madness, let's call it, cause we didn't have the real March madness, but the, this year's version of March madness led to, because because the dislocations ended in weeks, not months or years, maybe the the ugly stepchild is SPACs. Or not ugly, so, but like the unintended yeah. circumstance of the risk world is said, fuck, we, we had too much creativity, too much money. Uh, SPACs is a solution. Let's just go faster. You know, I Jason's very interested in SPACs. Ron Suber, who's an investor with us, you know, also very knowledgeable on SPACs. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, we tend to be involved with companies earlier. I think we can be upper 90 can be much more helpful to companies earlier, kind of at that series a level. Mm -hmm. I think for us, there's so many companies that have, you know, if it's a BDC or if it's a SPAC or, you know, it's a private equity firm, there's so much capital to deploy into very large opportunities that, it's fascinating, but it just, it's not something that I feel like we have a tremendous advantage in at this point versus. No, but it's just yeah. fascinating, right? You wouldn't have predicted yeah, it. Yeah, do you have a view on it? Like, where do you I have a view that I'm trying. There? I grew up in Canada, so it was, you heard the word spec, you heard the next word you heard is uh, criminal. Mm. <laughs> right. Next word you heard was uh, retired housewife lost uh, her fortune in a mining spec. Um, right. So anytime I hear SPAC, I think sucker. And so it's hard for me to make the 180 in three months and, and be fully bullish, which I am, but I'm only bullish on, it's a people business. So you can't replace the fact that 
someone's getting paid 15 to 30%, and it's just not the bankers. It's the SPAC owner and the promote. And so I'm, I'm completely cynical, but it's better than these growth equity rounds. It is, you know, as you talk about it, I think when we talk to investors about what we do, it's not financial engineering. It's, right. you know, it's there's a growing industry in e-commerce that's a tailwind. There's companies that have capital needs. Like there's all these kind of structural tailwinds that I think make what we do viable. But when I think now, as you just talked about it, like SPACs and BDCs and all these other, it doesn't seem like, it just seems more financial engineering versus like actually something that, um, has some type of, of tail, a macro tailwind, but. Right. It's a, it's an unintended consequence of, of low yeah. interest rates and zero interest rates exactly. and unlimited easing. That's what we're getting. Instead of SoftBank, we got SPACs. You yeah. know, SPACs are SoftBank 2.0. So you got to buy right. or beware. And what I like about what you guys are doing, you're just sticking to your knitting. So Thrasio, how did it come to you? Give people a little background on that. Sure. One. So we have a really interesting community of LPs. And, you know, in some ways it's almost like an outsourced CIO or family office. And Mark Gerson, who's been an amazing advisor and investor for Upper 90 from Gerson Lerman Group, uh, introduced us to Josh Silberstein, who's the founder of Thrasio. And at the time, we were looking at a couple different industries where there was a lot of fragmented assets, where the assets may be worth more if they were repositioned or rolled up. So the first one was a company called Wired Investors, that was rolling up websites, affiliate marketing. So websites in certain industries where the customers could be monetized more than they were currently being monetized. So for example, like totallygoldens.com or labradortrainers.com, like all these pet sites where people go to research puppies and training and they were selling all their leads to Amazon. They were buying these websites for almost nothing and then yeah, selling the leads. Yeah, and so we kind of were early into some of these industries where you kind of were able to um, you know, further monetize an asset. And as we were talking to Josh about this and he was thinking about Amazon. So he said, you know, look, there's almost 50,000 sellers that are independent on Amazon and starting their own stores and exhibit a lot of these properties that we saw in wired and, and kind of in the real world. And he came to upper 90 through Mark, uh, and, and my relationship with him after that to raise debt, to go and acquire some Amazon businesses where you could kind of create some scale and efficiency. And we said, look, it's too early for debt. There's not enough prov proven metrics. There's not enough collateral. So one of the benefits of being in our LP base is, you know, if things don't fit our core fund, which is kind of this, you know, unlevered senior secured debt, we share it with our LPs. So we sent the deck and the opportunity to our LPs. They raised $6 million in this seed round. Our LPs did 5 million of it. And that was at a, you know, 13 post, and after they bought their first three businesses, we gave them a senior secured delayed draw and term loan for $8 million. There was another debt provider competing with us, but they wanted to lock it up for five years and have all these covenants. And, sure. you know, we were just much more flexible and we scaled that facility to almost $45 million before they had to raise another dollar in equity. Right. Yeah, and no, nobody can be that creative that quickly. Yeah. And like for our investors, you know, the company was extremely low leverage and you know, every business they're buying kind of delevers the whole business. Yeah. Because and they're so using anyway, the list there, there, there's economies of scale on the list. Exactly. And so fast forward 18 months later, the company um, just closed a series C 
with Advent and a billion pre. And, you know, it's the founders own most of the company still. And, you know, we really have been that kind of that growth debt provider um, where they've had to raise minimal equity to get to this stage. I think it's probably a record if you look at like. It's a record. It's kind of like Slack, but in a different way. Yeah, exactly. Unbelievable. And that can be repeat. Obviously, it still comes down to the founder and we're able to, you know, pick winners. So, I mean, the CEO still has to be a special operator. Yeah, I find second time CEOs are like, you know, when we're, when we're arguing with somebody about like 100 basis points, it's the wrong <laughs> argument. Yeah. You know, it's just like we're here to help you grow and own your market. Yeah. And like certainty of capital as an early stage company, flexibility is so much more important than cost, you know, and it's temporary. And like, I think what we need to do is, you know, as we've kind of learned about the Amazon ecosystem, we just backed a great group that's also doing a similar roll-up around Shopify. Yeah, yeah, we and, saw that, but we couldn't move quickly. Yeah, enough. I shared it with you, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, you know, I think that it's just, you know, a really interesting, like the digital mall, and I think there'll be a lot of ways to um, to leverage what we've learned. Um, but that's been a special deal and, and special relationship with the company. And our LPs haven't, you know, co-invested in debt. Our LPs, I think, almost own 15 or 18% of the business. I think... So, I think what you said about second time founders, I'm biased cause I'm, you know, almost 80, 54, yeah. which was about 80 Canadian. So I'm 54 years old and I'm like tired. Want you <laughs> to be first time managers, but I got a little, it got moves and a belly pop belly. And yeah. I like pizza just as I like working out. And so the, it's not even an argument. It's just the battling. I, I was in the business, you know, back in the olden days of 2006, you know, when we were doing one on two and there was still enough money, you know, you didn't have to argue. Now we're talking about uncapped notes, two on 10 million caps. And I'm like, people, people. Yeah. There's a lot of money to be made at two on six or one on six and be creative. Why do we got to like, you know, it's well, some businesses also don't need to be a unicorn. You know, the company, the founder can own enough of their business. Yeah. I think it just takes a lot of the pressure off and I won't name some of the VCs, but and I think there's certain ones that, you know, really want to get the company from like zero to a hundred as fast as possible. And I think those are the ones we try to stay away from. Us too. Listen, we, um, I, if I picked a unicorn I have, it's more luck than it was. And it's more it the is, founder than it was me. I'm the first to admit it because, because I sell at a billion. We're investing in well, low valuation. You uh-huh. when you, one question. Teams, so use it wisely. I'll ask you, I'll ask you one question. Uh-huh. So one of the areas that we've been very interested in is every company that has customers in the e-commerce world uh-huh. will, we believe start offering a financing product to their customers. Correct. Well, I mean, Shopify just started money. That is how yeah, Alex and that's Hank like a larger money. scale, but like slice is doing it for now. They have, you know, hundreds or thousands of pizzerias. Now it's natural to also offer a financing. So what is the opportunity? Cause you know, it's almost capital as a service where does it make sense for, you know, every niche marketplace to kind of build out their own CFO and underwriting and tech and lending and capital markets. Like what's the, how do you automate some of this where we could offer this to more ecosystems and more niche marketplaces to offer more easily to their underlying clients. You know, something just we think about is like productizing a little bit of what we do. Well, that's going to be your goal. I mean, that's because you're an entrepreneur and you have a sick mind and you can't stop even though you're in Providence because Uh, you're very slow. Yeah. But that would be something to the people listening. Like, I think that's it's 
it'd be interesting to talk or brainstorm with somebody who's thinking about this. And, and uh, it's just, it's separate. You know, it's almost like a barbell. Our, our current fund is very manual, bespoke, very tailored. And I think we can help solve kind of the most complicated challenges for founders. And then there's kind of a more automated version. And so, you know, just. I invested personally in an automated version. Like I out of LA, so I'll introduce you. Uh, yeah. Jason probably knows them, but um, this, that's coming because that's a holy grail. That's productizing exactly what you're doing. You could, yeah. y- you can only grow as fast as your brand because you are, you are yelling against the narrative and you're not yelling, Correct. you're just doing your job. So upper 90, like, it's not like people are batting down your door. Um, I'm not doing you a favor. I'm begging you to come on my podcast because I'm trying to educate myself and the people that listen to me uh, and StockTwits and, and Twitter that there's alternatives, right? Because my job is someone who truly has been on both sides of the table. And I would say 90% of the companies getting VC investing today do not need VC investing. Maybe 95%. Yeah, they might need a ratio. And I I think, you know, it matters at the early stages. But I I agree with, I think, building a brand and building, you know, a kind of a voice to get to founders. And that's something we, you know, we, we just closed our second fund. And I think it's a primary goal is to help just get the word out there of, of empowering founders with more information about like what their options are. Dude, it's education. The narrative's bad. Look at yeah. Robinhood today. It's all, every article's a hit piece because it's easy to just say Citadel, Citadel, yeah. Citadel, $200 million apartment in New York. It's evil. Um, you know, they're trading against you. No one is trading against your two lots of options, your flyer options on Spotify's well, actually, earning tomorrow. I agree. It's interesting you brought that up because just part of what got me excited about Upper 90 and kind of this tailored capital is I can talk about Robinhood because I, I was in that world of where we would um, provide capital to retail. Okay. Uh, uh, not at Goldman, but at another company mm-hmm. called Mike Capital. And sure. what's very interesting is when you trade on an exchange, everybody is charged kind of by law the same price. Correct. And so if you're a very smart quant fund like Two Sigma or a very large institution like BlackRock or you're my mother buying a share of Google, mm-hmm. you know, Two Sigma is very smart. So when they're trading, they expect the price to go up or down at that moment. BlackRock's trading in size. So they, they will push the price of that stock up or down for a long time. You know, my mom is buying a share. She has neither of those characteristics. However, in a way, she's being overcharged because whoever's making a market against the first two is, is losing money and they're making mm-hmm. money on the last one because they can sell out of it without the market moving. So Knight and Citadel were very smart. They said, you know, if we can almost like life insurance find the healthy people, then we can give them a much better price than what they're getting in the market because they're subsidizing the unhealthy people. And so just kind of like that is kind of where I learned that if you can use all this data you can start almost giving like micro pricing versus generic pricing. And that actually is like a big way that I got onto what I'm doing now. And so are you, where do you, is the media got it right on Robinhood or wrong? I think that Robinhood, if you just think about it, they're able to offer their customers a cheaper and more efficient product. Like Facebook can offer people a free product because there is a monetization strategy. So, I feel that Robinhood and its investors are getting a better price because people can tighten the market because they know they're not going to get run over. 
It's like it's, Metro Mile. I think is doing the same thing. Like if you drive your car on the weekend, a prior you'd be charged the same price as the person who drives every day. And now they say, look, we'll put a tractor in your car and we'll charge you insurance by the mile. So I just think everyone should get micro pricing. It kind of breaks the model, but it's good for the client. It's like when I got into golf now, my whole thing was, you know, if you're going to go golfing at 6 a.m. in June 30th in Phoenix, that's got to be a way higher price than noon in June in Phoenix. You know, everybody should pay a different price. Exactly. And so more data, more technology, I think you're going to move more towards these freemium models um, than not. And I just think the hit pieces are often because it breaks the model of what has worked for larger institutions. Yeah, I mean, normally I'm scared of my own shadow, so don't get me wrong, but I, I feel pretty <laughs> confident that uh, the narrative, and so you ask about product, you're gonna have to, and I think you're being smart about it, you realize there's a product around what Upper 90's doing, there are people doing it, but brand matters and Upper 90's just gotta go at its own pace, and after, you know, you, gotta, you can only do what you can do, right? And to be yep. an artist and an artisan, what you guys are doing, trying to pick great companies and, and do great deals and win, win, win situations. In the end, that's still the best way to build a brand. Just like if you're DTC, it's about soul and-, and I, I agree with you. The art is taking less money. That's what I'm looking for. I, I agree. What you're doing at Social and IA Ventures and First Round, it's, you know, I also think it matters, like if you talk to one of our portfolio companies, Jason Gus at Octane, it's, you know, when we run a portfolio of, you know, 15 or 20 companies, every company matters. Like we can't have, right. a, you know, so if it's a hundreds of companies, it's just different. So, you know, I, I think our strategy is for the time being, you have a, you know, smaller fund. We can be that first credit facility of, you know, five to 10 to start scaling to 25, you know, for that phase of growth. And then I think there'll be kind of derivative opportunities that are created around kind of being in that ecosystem versus if you raise too much money, I think it just, if that problem is in some ways already solved for a lot of companies. Excellent. The name of this podcast is kind of a go a joke, but panic with friends, meaning, you know, started March 10th. Uh, I was too late to panic. So I said, guys, chill, let's talk to smart people. Uh, you know, it's not cause you're not in the top 10, but you're in the eighties because <laughs> the world pretty, I thought still like, don't, don't get me wrong. I thought we'd still be in the middle of a panic in July. Uh, seems yeah. like the panic has subsided. So I've kept going with the show and I'm thrilled that the panic has subsided, I think. But I would ask what is out there on page 10 that people are not factoring in right now? Is there something to panic about that you worry about that you can't do anything about right now, but like people should just keep in the back of their memory. Sure. So one of my bosses just has an unbelievable feel for the market. And he said something to me probably two years ago. We were at an investor dinner and someone said, you know, do you think the market's correcting? Is it a bubble? And he said, I, I, I don't think so. I think we have another run here for the next few years. And, you know, markets correct when the largest number of people get hurt. And at that time, a few years ago, like the retail movement had it happened. People had missed that upswing. But now everyone seems to be in the market or close to it. And so I, I think you just, that fable like may be closer to truth. Yeah, I like now that. that retail's been like fully invested and in, in exposed in the market. 
I would say, and again, I think that's, I asked you for your opinion and that's a great one. Um, I'll play the devil's advocate there because I'm so close to this, maybe too close. Is that like, just like in 08 when I started StockTwits, it happened to be within six months of the bottom. So StockTwits data for the next 12 years skewed positive and people, oh, permables. I'm like, you can't blame someone for being a permable when they invested at the bottom. (laughs) They didn't catch the top, they caught the bottom. So, So I would say 50% of the growth in Robinhood, 70% of the growth in all these new accounts came in March, April. Because StockTwits has doubled. I just have that empirical data just because I'll share it because I'm happy to share it about StockTwits and we're proud of it. And so it's so new. So I'm like, want to be that smart guy like your boss and say everybody's in and SPACs. Like there's so many signs. But there were so many signs along the way to this one, fuck, we had the we had Wuhan being built on TV and no one sold stocks until March. Um, it's very hard to predict the stock market. You know, that's correct. why I even, you know, have moved a little bit to cash. And Me too. I feel like our opportunities kind of in the private markets are still, um, we can at least control and have access to some of these things where I don't think there's as much, you know, alpha in the public markets. Another thing that some of our LPs talk about is because a lot of what we do is focus on e-commerce, maybe 25% of our portfolio positions. And obviously the supply chain is very integrated with China. And, you know, I think it's a non zero percent chance of some kind of conflict. And so I think that's just another thing to consider if there is a disruption in the supply chain and what that would do to e-commerce and just that, industry if you know 80 percent is still dependent on on china for manufacturing so i think that's just another thing that sometimes we talk about and have worked with our companies to diversify their supply chain but it's very difficult oh it is still difficult to do but that's a problem that now is what i'm bullish about with that is that's on page one if you're if you don't if you no, haven't seen that sure. coming you're not reading it, page it's one on page one but i think if you talk to most people they would assign a probability of that of like much lower than what the probability may actually be Really, I'm a hundred percent. Like if you, <laughs> well, that's <fine. laughs> I'm at a hundred percent. I made well, you know, a mining investment, our, <laughs> therefore I'm at a hundred percent. I love it. You know, if you, well, I think this kind of signifies the opportunity yeah. for Upper Ninety. When you come to one of our LP events, you know, think of the, you know, two thirds of the tech founders. Yeah, yeah exactly. One third are uh, hedge fund and quant managers. Yeah. And for the tech founders, we say write down what the GDP is of the U.S. Right. And it's often like, you know, 1 trillion to 80 trillion. And then for the quant founders in the group or the finance side of the room will say, what the total GMV of Amazon third-party sellers? And they're like 10 billion to 1 trillion. And it's like, you know, three or 400 billion. So it's just like if you're like these, you know, if you're off by 1 trillion, it's like enormous. So yeah. I think it's also hard to conceptualize. Like people think of what we do is like niche and, like how big could that be? But these are enormous markets. And I think there's like just a structural trend. Um, but you kind of have to fit the DNA and, and it's still relationship business. Still a relationship business, man. I could talk to you about this for yeah. forever. The, but I'm with you on the e-commerce and I'm with you on, on fighting the narrative. Well, sorry, you can't fight the narrative. It's, an, it's a tidal wave of, of, of clicks. So all you can do is do good work and eventually the network gets built and then everybody piles in. I think the key is to control 
I was going to ask you, what advice do you have for, you know, you've managed and, and built a fund for a long time now. What, what advice do you have to early managers like ourselves? Yeah, I mean, social, I've been starting to think of this because we're starting to write. I've, I think the alpha, I've been, no, now I'm biased because I was in a couple small funds that have been monster home runs and a couple first time fund managers and small funds. You know what I mean? We're no institutions. Yep. And uh, so I'm biased. I mean, just like you, you called Stocktwitch people perm- permables, you call the Reddit people crazy people. You know, they're not crazy. They're just playing dare on, they're playing digital dare. Like people are buying Hertz, not because they're stupid, it's because they think someone's stupider. Meaning they're just playing yeah. chicken with their fingers. Uh, it just happens to be HTZ is the ticker they're playing chicken with. So I think my advice is tune that shit out and, and, and do your job. Like just because everybody's writing checks at uncapped notes or 10 mil or YC's doing this stuff, don't build your brand on my dollars. So what I find that was happening going into the crash was a lot of these first time fund managers, you give them money and they're doing uncapped notes and they're, they're saying, well, cause they're using your money to go build their brand, to raise their second fund. That is a fucking technical foul, right? And so yep. you had that, you had the soft bet, you had these signs in the private markets. Cause a lot of smart people are like 2016, oh, this is a bear market. And then we did a rate, it just was the tipping point for a massive run in startup investing. And so the top didn't yep. happen. And I don't even know if we had a top. The only real top to happen is if you had SoftBank's jism in your portfolio, uh, you got hit. Like wherever SoftBank had money was like, ugh, right? Um, but a lot of these first time fund managers got caught up in it because they're trying to raise their second fund because it was a micro fund. So what I would say to first time managers is just like, no one knows. They're only gonna, you're gonna get fired for breaking rules. Right, no one's gonna fire you if you're doing proper deals at the right market cap and you're staying in your lane and you're sticking to your domain experience. So, like what you guys do is like you can't fight the narrative, and you can't. You got to be really damn sure if you're gonna break your rules. Like we did at Robin, what we did for Robinhood is like we just held our nose because we knew from all our years and doing things yeah, that was gonna work. With, with Razio, you know, you have to know when to lean in. Yeah. You know, your best, your best idea might be better than all your next six best ideas combined. And so being more concentrated like Valar, you know, and some other models that, you know, willing to take appropriate risk. And I, I think that, the, you know, that makes sense. I mean, that's, you have to do that, I think, in this environment to gen- generate alpha for your LPs. Yeah, to generate alpha, we're trying to find managers that uh, have a strong network, uh, have seen the goal line, uh, can stick to don't get caught up in the narrative that they're great and that they're smart. You know, not every company has to yep. be a unicorn and you can return your fund on a $300 million exit. If you, I, pro- I agree. if you properly, you know, do this. So a lot of it's just going to come down to education. Uh, March was an education. I don't know if it was enough of an education cause it lasted three weeks. Um, and what it did do is scare the shit out of a lot of 60 and 70 year olds who may never come back in the stock market. And so, these young people did the old people a favor by picking up all this supply. Um, my worry, page 10 is more the bond market. Like why is people putting their money in just straight on bond funds at 2% interest? I still don't get that. Someone's gonna have to explain that to me. 
And so I still see all these advisors, 60, 40, 70, 30 portfolios. And I go, that 40 and 30 just seems pretty awful to me. Right. Is that, am I wrong or am I instincts no, I, right I think, there? I, 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 I think you're right. And I think for us, it's just, it's really a goal this year is developing those partnerships in the VC ecosystem and, you know, that C to A level, because once companies raise a lot of equity, you know, they might as well get cheap debt. And I think it's just figuring out how to help be involved earlier. You know, a lot of people also ask, like, oh, if you're, you know, investing in earlier stage, you know, Series A plus companies, the failure rate's high, do you do venture debt? You know, how do you get debt-like returns for equity-like risk or, you know, equity-like risk for debt-like returns? And equity-like returns for debt-like risk, excuse me. Yep. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's not doing venture debt. Venture debt to me is just not a great strategy. You're investing in a cash flow negative business mm-hmm. because they have a tier one VC. And the only way you can get repaid is if the VC puts more money into the business. Yeah. And like, if the music stops, like I'd rather just be equity. Yeah. What we're saying is like, there's businesses like Coastline's one of our businesses. They've built the 21st century driver's education school. Yeah, so it's a government one. mandated program and it's private industry. And these guys have built an amazing way to identify drivers, train them. They've given them on all an outfitted Prius, built an app to connect students and drivers, have built upsell tools, et cetera. And their busy, biggest expense growing was the Prius. Huh. And so like we just stripped out that asset and we're financing that asset, which has a lot of collateral. So I think it's, it's doing kind of more receivable and tailored financing for an appropriate asset that has positive unit economics, not kind of just financing an, a business as an insurance policy to equity. And I think that's part of the education too, that we find more with investors. Yeah. The VC side of that would have a nerf Prius for that specific class. It would last yeah. longer. The, um, so before I, I go upper 90, what does it mean? So I played soccer in college and it was a top corner of a goal. It's like these niche, oh. hard to find, skill-based deals that, and one of my really good friends who uh, started to fund an indie called Malabar, as I told him at Upper 90, he's like, you know, there's so many of these little micro opportunities forming that it's, it's not like this like niche Upper 90, but it's, you know, kind of the whole goal will be filled with like, you know, your kids go and get an internship next summer at McKinsey at Goldman. They're going to have to get an apartment before they start getting paid. There's a startup that will validate your employment and then give you your down payment for your apartment for the summer and collect out of your payroll. So I, I think there's going to be so many niche opportunities. So it, the, the homage is, is a soccer reference to like the top corner of a goal or that's kind of where it came from. Huh? Cause you know, you know, in hockey, that was always the thing is tuck it under the crossbar, yeah, but I didn't know there's not, I don't think they call it upper 90, but is that's really all right, Sam. I'm glad I asked that. I knew there had to be a reason. Yeah. I thought it was because everybody was born above 90th Street in the East Side. <laughs> Why well, so lived on hear. the 95th? Just your LPs. Just your LPs are up The uh, all right. So is it, so Jason's in LA, and Alex yep. is stuck in New York. Yes. And uh, how big's the team now? We have uh, about 14 full time, and after we just closed our second fund of 150 million, actually just sent out the capital call notice today and we'll hire probably another five. So I'd say we'll be at about 50, 20 full-time and just you know running credit, just very operationally intensive, a lot of um, covenants and monitoring. So, but yeah, so 15, you know, 14 today, probably 20 by end of year. 
And how has COVID changed how you guys work? So we just added a new person to the partnership, Bill Geist, and he's in Baltimore. So in some ways, I think, again, kind of going to lucky versus good. If this had happened two years ago, I just I don't think culturally we would have had the depth and a trust as a team to figure out how to work remotely. You know, having been in business for two years and, you know, kind of putting a lot of money out across 20 companies, you, you learn how to work with each other. And so we're big enough where we can optimally function. Uh, if it was in the first innings of our business, I think it would have been really hard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I still think, the, I mean, the biggest challenge I think is every interaction you have or 90% of your interactions are work-related. It's, it's just very hard to kind of those social, personal interactions. Jason says, you know, at YPO, they have monthly meetings, and, like, the first part of the meeting is just giving a life update. How's your family? How's your kids? And I just find, like, figuring out how to, like, bring non-work interaction into this environment is something that I think is important, and, and you probably, all of us, don't do enough of. And when will New York be back, at your best guess? It's got to be replaced. All these, all these people moving out have to be replaced. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's the tale of two cities or some people. I don't think we'll be back in the office this year. No, I agree 100%. I mean, Google says and, next summer, so it's at least that. Yeah, and I think that the quality of life, you know, in Providence or wherever else is just better. Yep. And Alex, my partner said something interesting, you know, there used to be the, the coin term of doing offsites. You know, every month or every quarter you get your management team and everyone knows what an offsite is. You know, maybe we go to a world of where you do onsites. You know, okay. so like every other week the whole team comes into the city for three days or every month. So I, I think it's just gonna change. There's gonna be some medium, like it's not gonna be what it was, but it's not gonna be like everyone's virtual. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's, it's too hard for the young people, I think. Them youngins. All right, my man, yeah. we will for sure uh, be seeing you, talking to you at some point soon. Thanks for uh, spreading the wisdom Thank you. here today. And uh, congrats on you, the fun. You've been part of the journey from the beginning, so I you know, appreciate everything from you know, helping me transition from finance and to helping getting this started and, you know, and helping be part of fun too. So hopefully we can find, the you know, next time we talk, we should find a deal that we've done together. Well, we've done, but not directly direct. We're trying. Yeah, so. no, but like something, you know, that we can both be meaningfully part of. You got it. I appreciate it. Awesome. Uh, take care. Thank you so we'll, much. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Bill. Great. Bye. So there you have it, Canute. Another way to skin the cat. Yeah. Didn't expect that, huh? Another bright, bright man. Wow. Distributed brightness is yes. what we call it. Moving to Providence. I think he, I was asking about statues. I don't think he heard it. He was talking about you. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I didn't even want to go back. Nah. I'm so hot. It's like 140 degrees. I just said, ah, he didn't hear. Yeah, exactly. The joke fell flat. <laughs> you know, when you when you tell a joke to a smart person and they don't get it, maybe it's just being polite, like bad joke. I'm not even going there. Yeah, he's not going to embarrass you further. Yeah, I like making smart people laugh. Bill is uh, smart and uh, his partners are really smart. So upper 90, um, delay the A. If you need an intro, you got a startup and uh, you got margins and you want to be artistic about it, artisanal about building a brand, 
uh, highly recommend there's people like upper 90 out there who are on your side. There are win, win, win situations. Listen, VCs are great. I'm a VC or posing as one. The, um, <laughs> so there's more than one way to skin a cat. You are listening to panic with friends, uh, Catching it, you may be catching us on Spotify or Apple. Uh, thank you, Stock Twits, for spreading the show wide. Thank you, Canute, uh, for producing it. You can just search Stock Twits or you search Panic with Friends or search my name, Howard Lindzen. You can go to my blog, howardlindzen.com, free email about trends and prostates and body hair. Uh, and uh, subscribe. See everybody soon. <laughs>